Hello, welcome back. And welcome, if this is your first time here. This is Baltic Wars, a Scandinavian Baltic history podcast from 1520 to 1809, though we do before it and beyond it. This is a great big history podcast special edition. In this episode, we do episode two, Ukraine 2022. This is a bonus episode. Where do we go from here? Where we talk about what's um, the possible options for what happens in Ukraine. So this comes from the Ukraine crisis. Where do we go from here? Um, Dr. Christopher Gennari, myself. Uh, and this was part four of the crisis in Ukraine lecture night. Uh, it was a community lecture presented at Candom County College's Center for Cultural Engagement. We had about 75 people from the community, students, uh, fellow professors, community members who came out. It was our first big uh, post-pandemic event, so we got a good crowd. I had the part that was, well, what might happen? So the favorite part of a historian, which is uh, looking at the past, <laughs> I got the, the look at the future. And there's a couple of options. And the first option is, is Putin going to be overthrown? Because that's, that's the first question people have. Uh, a, a Khrushchev or Gorbachev 91 palace coup where pretty much the hardliners try to overthrow the the government what about a liberal color revolution a popular coup you know people out in the streets flags waving the occupation 24 hours a day of something called like freedom square revolution square independence independence plaza what about a spain in 36 a france in 58 or chile in 73 a military coup when a military turns on the government and effectively overthrows it, if not completely taking it over, at least um, replacing it with someone more friendly to the military? The answer, I think, is unlikely. Now, in history, we never say never. Because it's always happened. But there's no one to Putin's right. The army is politically weak, which is how dictators like it. Dictators don't want the military to be able to overthrow them. So the army is politically weak. The oligarchs, the rich 1%, 2%, owe him. And Putin is personally popular. We may find that in the United States and in the West. Weird, but he is personally popular, especially with older Russians who remember the the Soviet Union, and especially the disasters of the 1990s, the 1980s and 1990s. Um, he's popular with conservatives. He, he is a culture warrior. This is why he's he has a popularity on the American right and the French right. He's personally popular with conservative, religious people in Russia on the right. And Putin has been obsessed with liberal revolutions for a decade. So he's been doing everything from throwing uh, rock stars into jail to poisoning political enemies. He doesn't want there to be a liberal revolution. There's no ground for it. 
is Putin probably isn't going anywhere anytime soon. So then what are our options? Then if, if Putin's going to be staying, then what are our options? What's happening? Well, the first is the gathering of the Russian speakers. That what Putin wants to do is absorb all of the Russian speakers, if not more people, but especially the Russian speakers, who ended up not in the Soviet Union, not in the Soviet Union, that were in the Soviet Union, scattered throughout the Soviet Union, who didn't end up in Russia. So rather than bring them back through immigration, he wants to carve off those territories. And we've seen this for the last 15 years or so. Now, why? Why? And I think it has to do with Russia's population. I've been saying this for five, six, seven years, ever since I read an article in Foreign Affairs about Russia's population and its death rate and its its illness as a population. Because the most startling factor about Russia is that Russia's population is the same as it was 40 years ago. Russia's population is the same as it was in 1986. That's not Russia versus the Soviet Union. That's Russia versus Russia. Now, the USA has 90 million more people. Third, the United States population has grown almost by a third in that time. So in Russia, much like the rest of Europe, the birth rate is 1.5 children, child per woman. Now, that means now a, women, a, a woman just to keep population even, has to have 2.1, 2.2 children. Why? Well, one, men can't have children, so they're, they're useless in birth rate. So they're negative. They can't, men cannot repopulate, cannot add children. So when they die, the population goes down. So it's up to women to repopulate for, for demographic growth. So... They need to replace themselves and their husband, their partner, their male partner. So they need to have two children just to stay even. But not all of those children will have children. Some of them will be nuns. Some of them will die before they can reproduce. Some of them just won't get married and won't have children. So, you, so that number is going to be higher. So it's 2.1, 2.2 per woman. 1.5 means Russia is shrinking. And this is causing a panic in Russia, just like it's causing a panic in Europe, just like it's causing a panic with conservatives in America. We also know that Russia is shrinking quickly, quicker than the United States, quicker than most of the countries in the West, because life expectancy is 65 it's somewhere north of 75 for men in the United States, and it's somewhere around 80 in a lot of Europe. So life expectancy in Russia for men is 65. So they're dying sooner. Remember, in the United States, you can't even really collect Social Security till around 65. So you're not expected to even retire to 65. That's when Russian men are dying on average. 
So the smoking and the alcoholism and the and the um, dangerous life behaviors are taking a toll on Russian life expectancy. There are also 25 million Russian speakers outside of Russia. So that's that right there is a population boom if you can suck them up, if you can bring them in. And we see on our little map that large populations of the country, of the countries surrounding Russia, what Russia calls the near abroad, those are large populations that conservatives, Putin included, look at and say, they're ours, they're our people. Why should they live outside of Russia? And so those 25 million Russian speakers represent kind of the future because Putin needs more Russians. Russia is declining as a population. Well, that's going to hurt all your social services. That's going to hurt your tax base. That's going to hurt your military. That's going to hurt, hurt, hurt. Less people is kind of like less money. We, we don't know how to deal with it. So Putin needs more Russians. And by gathering the Russian speakers, it also allows Putin to create this new anti-West sphere of power. It's a play on his history and nostalgia. It's, it's a gathering of the Russian speakers. It's, it's what Fiona Hill, who's a Russia expert and testified in the um, Trump's first impeachment, has been going on regular podcasts and saying, Putin wants to be Peter. He wants to create this empire. But unlike Peter, who needed to break through the Swedes to the ocean or break through the Turks to the Black Sea, who needed economics, who needed to modernize his country, Putin needs people. He needs Russians. And there's also this nostalgia for bringing back these people, for, for this growth that rushes back again. It's not falling apart. And so how do we do that? Well, A is a successful invasion. 1654, 1655. On our map, if you're watching the video, is this massive invasion of Poland-Lithuania in 1654 with drives from the east going west towards Kiev and then Lviv in the south and then Minsk and Vilnius, Vilno in the north. So what we're looking at is what we kind of saw in March, the 1650s. It starts with a pro-Russian revolt in eastern Ukraine a few years earlier. We've got that, 2014. And then we have the invasion, conquest, absorption of the Orthodox Slavic lands, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova. Now, in 1654, the Russian armies did not get as, as far west as Moldova. They, they ended up fighting the Swedes in the Baltic, which is the invasion of the coastal Baltic states the threat of which led a Western army to defend Riga. 
and Estonia. It was Sweden in 1654. It's NATO now. And there are headline after headline after headline, week after week after week of NATO troops, American troops being sent to Poland, being sent to Riga, being sent to Estonia. And I'm like, this is 1654 all over again, because that's exactly what the Swedes did. Now, they, they were antagonistic to the Poles, so they had to invade Poland. But they did the same thing. They occupied Polish cities to defend them from a Russian invasion. They sent troops to the Baltic, which they were allied with. They, they controlled. But if you look at the map, you see these massive invasions from the east towards Kiev and then towards Lviv in the south, but also into Belarus, that's Minsk, and then north to Vilno, which is the capital today of Lithuania, which is a NATO state. It's not that far away from Minsk. They're not separated by all that much. And now Belarus has been absorbed. That's part of this. Without massive invasions, Belarus is participating in the invasion of Ukraine. If not its formal army, at least they're letting the Russians use their land. They are essentially a colony now. They have a dictator who's aligned with Putin, and they have essentially been absorbed. One of the things that we haven't talked about in the Ukraine crisis is that Belarus stopped being a regular country right before it, in February. Now, you can make the argument it wasn't a regular country before, that it was completely dependent on Putin, it was completely dependent on Russia, that the government was completely dependent on Putin, but Belarus no longer is an independent country. It ended in like February and nobody talks about it. It's essentially part of Russia. It has been used as a staging ground. It's essentially now a colony. Now, in the 1650s, this was followed by an invasion of the coastal Baltic states, and that's what people are worried about. They're worried about what's next, what's next. Clearly, Moldova is, is next. If, if Kiev had fallen and the east was absorbed and a land bridge was built in the south, that would have connected, and we'll talk about this in a bit, to the separatists in Moldova, which would have allowed Russian troops to enter Moldova and then use that as a pretext for the invasion of and absorption of Moldova. In March, we were seeing... I was seeing 1654. Now, why am I seeing it? Because that's my dissertation. That's what my dissertation was about. That's what my book is about. That is what, and that's what this, this podcast is kind of about. So we have the invasion, absorption of Orthodox Slavic lands. We have the possible invasion of coastal Baltic states. And we have the genocide of minority Jewish population. That happened in the 1650s. We've are seen war crimes, but those war crimes do not seem to be specifically against a Jewish population, but in the 1650s they were. And it's not to say that it couldn't happen again. Uh, Putin discusses a genocide of Russian speakers. Zelensky discusses a genocide of Ukraine. The Prime Minister of Israel was the first head of state to go and meet Putin after the invasion. He's spoken to Zelensky. So this, the idea was to protect the 200,000 Jews living in the Ukraine. And already, they've, Israel has accepted 5,000 refugees. This is an area of the world where the word genocide means something. Because we've seen it again and again. Whether it was the 1650s or the 
late 1800s or, of course, the Holocaust, this is an area where genocide means something. It has happened. It has been attempted. And so it resonates throughout these populations. So you've seen the word be used over and over again, that this is what the other side wants to do. What about an unsuccessful invasion? So the invasion started and stopped before it captured Kiev, or Kiev, excuse me. I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm not used to, the, to it being Kiev. So please forgive me if I've said it several times in this, this podcast. It's, it's just being old, or middle-aged, I should say. It's not funny, but I've heard other, the, the, the older, the, the historian on a podcast or on the news, the more likely they are to use the Russian name for the city rather than the Ukrainian name for it. It's just habit. What about an unsuccessful invasion? Um, now, the map I'm showing you was, is from April 1st, and it was showing a withdrawal from Kiev of Russian troops from the north. Those troops are expected to be redeployed in the east. And so what we may have is actually an invasion that looks more like 1654. A huge eastern push that still may want to conquer Kiev from east to west and goes towards Lviv. But let's say all of those Guns, all those bullets, all those anti-tank um, missiles stopped the Russian invasion. What are we looking at? Well, the first is the negotiated option. And as we can see, that started and it's kind of ended by April, well, today, 15, let's say. Because the negotiated option is going to end with a territorial linkage of the breakaway republics. Georgia, Moldova, the Donbass, Ukraine. Maybe even if they capture Odessa to Transnistria, which is the breakaway republic of Moldova. I would expect, and when, I, when we presented this lecture, that's what was happening. Odessa was being shelled. The second part, though, is the subjugation of Ukraine's government in what they would call neutrality. What we have heard on the news is called neutrality. But what does that mean? That means no NATO, no EU. That means basically become a colony of Russia. That means lose a third of its country, be occupied by Russian military, and have a government that basically Putin picks, basically make Ukraine into Belarus. So that's no more democracy. That's no more independence. That's no more EU. That's no more West. That's no more NATO. That Ukraine basically goes back to what it was in the Soviet Union, the breadbasket for Russia, where the wheat and the grain is exported to the Middle East, making Russian oligarchs a lot of money. And whoever's in charge is basically put there. So what this would create is a Russian sphere of success. It enlarges Russia 
it absorbs the, some of the Russian speakers or many of the Russian speakers, and it creates this, this um, anesthetized or lobotomized state to its south that it can exploit for money. It's not quite Putin the Great, but it's a good start if you're Putin. And I think in the early days, there was a lot of enthusiasm in the news for negotiation of peace, negotiation of peace. Let's negotiate. Without the news people really understanding what Putin wanted or what would have to be negotiated away. And what was and there were some voices, some some there were some voices on podcasts or on um, talking heads that were interviewed. But I watched a lot of CNN and MSNBC and saw a lot of people talk about you should negotiate. You, Zelensky's negotiating. Well, Zelensky was negotiating the end of his job, the end of democracy, and the end of Ukrainian independence. He couldn't really negotiate that away. So it was it, it was always not in bad faith, but it was always not going to happen because the Russian argument was you should cease to exist. And you can't negotiate away your existence. So what's option two? Option two is a Cold War guerrilla war. The U.S. in Vietnam, Russians in Afghanistan. It is a long slog with um, the Russians occupying large pieces of territory and Ukrainian army plus citizens fighting to kick them out. That means Russian conscripts, young Russian men who are conscripted into the army, try to take Ukrainian-speaking majority territory. So leave the Donbass, lay siege to Kiev again, absorb pieces of the south, strike out into the middle and maybe even into the west near Lviv, And the result is that NATO floods Ukraine with weapons. We've seen this already. This is, this is in fact, the option from day one that military planners in the West wanted. This is the, the anti-tank missiles. This is the anti-air missiles, the Stinger rockets. NATO floods the Ukraine with weapons, but does not engage militarily. This is also the option for why Ukraine did not let its men leave as refugees in the early days. The idea was, oh, all you men have to stay. Well, the men are useless at war. They're just bodies. They have to be trained. And there's no place to train them. Well, we'll, we'll give them a weapon. And sorry, you gave weapons, Molotov cocktails. And the idea was guerrilla warfare. Take out a few Russians before you die. So... This is what people expected. This is kind of what the Western military's NATO's was wanting to happen. You know, not an outright Ukrainian victory, a decisive military battle. You know, like something out of World War II or Korea, but a Vietnam and Afghanistan that is long, it's grinding. The U.S. and Vietnam, Russians and Afghanistan, it's 10 years. 10 years. The U.S. was in Afghanistan for 20 years. And just like in Vietnam, just like in Afghanistan, and just like us in Iraq, 
it becomes a very violent war. Lots of war crimes against civilians. Lots of war crimes. The armies get frustrated that they can't win. They can't end it. We see this in the 1650s. And we'll talk about this when we get there in our regular lecture series. But the idea is you start committing mass atrocities against people for either being guerrillas, suspected guerrillas, or for helping the suspected guerrillas. There's the famous statement from Vietnam of the soldier telling the news reporter, uh, we had to destroy the village to save it. Well, what is that a statement of? It's a statement of we can't leave this, the village the way it is. The guerrillas are going to take it over. The commie guerrillas are going to take it over. So we had to destroy it. And if people died, they died. Like in Platoon. Platoon has the burning of a village. The other thing, because we're dealing with the Russian army, is massive urban destruction. See Grozny. See Aleppo. See, I keep seeing things on CNN and MSNBC where they're like indiscriminate bombing. I'm like, no, it's not indiscriminate bombing. This is this is what the Russian army is good at. That I keep seeing things that are like the Russian army surprisingly is bad. No, the Russian army is not built for the invasion of Ukraine. It wasn't. It's built to suppress a revolution. That's what it's built for. It's not built to fight NATO in Poland and Germany the way the Soviet Union army was. Putin doesn't want that kind of war, or he hasn't up till now. What he built his army to do was invade small countries and put down urban riots. So what this army is very good at, very good, is leveling cities, is siege warfare. See Grozny, see Aleppo. And if you look on the video, you compare it to Mariupol. Grozny in 1995, street by street, building by building, Aleppo in 2016, building by building, and now Mariupol, same thing, street by street, building complex by building complex, it's just leveled, hollowed out, burned up, why? Because the Russians don't want to fight street to street. Dr. Jack Pesda talked about in our in our in-person lecture about Leningrad and Stalingrad. Well, the Russians have a memory of that. And they don't want to do that, especially as the attacker. The Russian army doesn't want to fight street to street, which is exactly where a guerrilla army goes. So what they do is they level, they level the city, but they level what's inhabitable. They level what makes a city a city, the hospitals, the schools, the energy infrastructure. Why? Because they want civilians to leave. The idea being is after the civilians leave, everybody who's left is a combatant. Everybody who's left can be shot. Everybody who's left can be destroyed. And everything that's left is empty. So you just level it. And so it's a way of avoiding the street, the street, the street fighting. You just level the city. 
but you level what makes it inhabitable. And so day after day after day, we watch CNN and it's a child's hospital has been attacked. A hospital has been attacked. A school has been bombed. And people are like, this indiscriminate. It's not indiscriminate. It's very purposeful. It's very purposeful in order to get people to leave, to run away, to be, to be refugees. Because if they're refugees, they can't fight. If they're refugees, the defending army can't fight because it's worried about or a significant portion of the people in that army are worried about helping those refugees. So you hit the markets. You hit the energy. You hit the heat, the gas, the oil. You make a city uninhabitable, which tells you Putin is not interested in owning the cities. He's not interested in the economic life of Ukraine afterwards, even if he captures it, even if he takes it over. It means he's fine with Ukraine becoming a colony. It'll be rebuilt one day by Russians. And who will live there? Russians. Russian speakers. And it will become part of Russia again. Because the Ukrainian speakers have all fled west. See how this works? It is the genocide. It is the diabolical thing. It is clearing an area of the people who call it home, who you don't like. So it's not a genocide in a Holocaust, murder them all. But it's a, it's, it's, it's a Prussia. In 1945, it's Stalin in Prussia. It's you just push them. You take all the Germans who lived in Prussia and you move them to East Germany. So there's no Germans left. Now East Prussia is not East Prussia anymore. It's part of Poland. So what happens is Ukraine gets battered into, into submission or Russia leaves a destroyed country. Either way, you have permanent refugees, especially among the educated classes. You get a Ukrainian brain drain. Those who have skills that the West needs, so technology skills, but also um, trade skills, are going to go West. They're going to go to Germany. They're going to be hired. Britain and France and Scandinavia. Ukraine is going to lose a generation of growth, maybe more, through a guerrilla war. It's going to lose an entire generation. Option three is bygones. There is a peaceful solution, and that peaceful solution is a pro-Russian, pro-Putin government is elected in the United States, Germany, France, or Britain. See Hungary, which was two days, the Hungarian uh, election was two days before our presentation on Sunday where a pro-Putin government was elected. Now, Hungary is part of NATO, and so it still has to coordinate. It still has to be part. It's part of the EU. But Viktor Orban would be perfectly happy with a negotiated settlement with Putin, one that ends hostilities, and if it's the U.S., Germany, France, or Britain, threatens to break up NATO. 
the idea is that Ukraine just isn't worth it. It's not worth all the money we're spending. It's not worth the higher energy prices. It's not worth the inflation. It's just not worth it. And so Putin gains a sphere of control in Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, maybe the Caucasus. Oh, definitely the Caucasus, but maybe the Baltic? They're part of NATO and part of EU, but are they worth fighting for? Is Estonia worth fighting for? Finland? Is Finland worth fighting for? For the Swedes, it's worth fighting for. But is it worth a pro-Putin United States government fighting for? Uh, Maybe, maybe not. You know? Also, if Putin gets away with it, does China attack Taiwan? Putin's claims are not dissimilar. Taiwan, there is the one China policy that the United States is a signatory to, that China and Taiwan are one country, that they are indivisible. Now, the difference is how to put them back together and how to get them agree to be put back together. But President Xi has a similar argument that Taiwan is part of China and that it should be absorbed. Just like the Russian speakers in Ukraine should be absorbed. So does China attack Taiwan? Are we in the new 1930s? A war in the Pacific? A war in Europe? Are we? That's terrifying. But if you have an isolationist government um, in U.S., Germany, France, Britain, and the uh, Marie Le Pen's party came in second in France in the elections just the other day, but in the United States, Donald Trump, who may run again, certainly um, was anti-NATO during his uh, presidency and had a good relationship with Putin, with President Putin. So if he's president again, would that relationship return? And wouldn't that be what a large percentage of people who voted for him wanted? You'd have to think yes. You know, it wouldn't be all of them. It wouldn't be everybody in that coalition, but there'd be a large percentage of isolationists just like there were in the United States in the 1930s. So in conclusion, things have changed. In America, in the world, things have changed. We have clearly entered the nineteen, the post-1991 uh, end of history, last man era of, of peace in the West has ended. But clearly now we're in great power politics again. Clearly now we have entered a world where war is not too expensive to fight. And so, but how much has changed? We don't know. Is there going to be a war in Taiwan, in the Pacific? We don't know. Which version is going to happen in Ukraine? We don't know. It seems that the Russian army is gearing up for a 1654, a second 1654 invasion, one that looks more like 1654, actually, with a just an invasion right through the Russian speakers in the east and going as far west as it can. 
in the 1650s, the Polish-Lithuanian army collapsed. And so Kiev fell, and then um, Lviv fell. Minsk was occupied, and Vilno fell in Lithuania. So it was just, it was a complete collapse of, of Polish-Lithuanian kingdom in the east. It just got knocked right over. Um, that hasn't happened so far, but can it? It can. We're going to see a new offense, offensive come May, if not earlier. You know, once once the ground dries out, once the spring rains stop. But what we do know is the world has changed. We don't know how much, and it's not going to stop anytime soon. The younger generations are in a new world than they were six months earlier. And considering six months earlier, we were in a pandemic. They were already in a new world. But Putin has been doing this for 20 years. And Putin is 70. President Xi is 70. Which means there's not a lot of time left to become Putin the Great. So Fiona Hill is right. If Putin wants to put his name up in history with Peter and Catherine and Alexander, who defeated Napoleon, he doesn't have a lot of time left. He's already older than the average Russian male at the time of their death. So you don't usually get great commanders in their later years who suddenly become the great, the magnificent. Right? They do it in their 20s, their 30s. But Putin is 70 which means he wants, if he's going to change the world, he has to do it now. He can't wait. So it means the world is going to be under stress from a, from Russian um, military, Russian cyber attacks, Russian um, offense for the foreseeable future. And Putin does not have a successor. A clear one, anyway. Three, the world needs Russian energy. There's no way around this. The world needs energy until we until the Western economies move to renewables. And so oil, coal, and gas. And China needs it. East Asia needs it. India needs it. The developing economies need Russian oil, coal, and gas, which means Russia will continue to have power and it will continue to have money. Four, there's a thread of European history that goes way back that is Russia versus Western Europe. It's the idea of the Russian steamroller in in western parlance versus the western imperialists in the soviet russian parlance it is the swedes invading it is napoleon invading it's the nazis invading it is stalin's 10 year behind speech that russia is always 10 years behind and so we have to catch up and so this will be propaganda for con the continuation of hostilities is Finland and Sweden going to join NATO? There's a good possibility that they're going to apply, which I think is crazy. Because Sweden and Finland invaded Russia. The idea that Putin is going to allow Finland, which is right on his border, Russia took over Finland in order to stop Sweden and Finland from invading. It took half of Swedish empire, it destroyed the Swedish empire in order to stop invasions and wars on its border. And even when Finland gained its independence, uh, 
during the First World War, the they weren't completely independent. It was what's called Finlandization. It was an independence that couldn't anger the Soviet Union. Sweden's neutrality goes back to when Russia took over Finland in 1809. So Sweden hasn't fought a major war in 200 years. And now they're going to join NATO? That's crazy. So when I say things have changed, that's how things have changed. That Finland and Sweden are thinking about changing their politics of hundreds of years. And number five, there are popular voices on the radio, on TV, in podcasts who like Putin, who like the masculine power of Putin. They long for the strong man. They long for the dictator. What we're seeing is that this type of war is going to go on for a while. Putin is not done trying to change the international system. Russia is cannot be weakened completely. It is not, while well, people will say, oh, it's a small economy, and it is relatively, and it's a one-horse economy. It's energy for the most part. The world needs that energy, and it's got a lot of it. You know, the amount of wood and timber Russia has so you can never really completely turn off the tap. Because even if you turn off the tap in Europe, China and India and the developing countries are going to need that. And the Middle East needs the wheat. The Middle East needs the food. And so this plays into a long history of the Russia versus the West and the West versus Russia. This goes back to the German crusaders in the 1200s. Conquering and converting Poland... And it's the Teutonic Knights, which gets us into kind of Nazism and white supremacy. And then there's the culture wars that are being fought in the West about what's a real man and who's a real leader. And there's a lot of threads of gender and race and violence and money and capitalism and democracy and dictatorship and oligarchies that are all being stirred up. There's a big hornet's nest. And I don't think we, there's no way of knowing. I don't think we can know. We can't know how it's going to play out. Chemical weapons, nuclear weapons, we don't know. That's our options. Be safe. Take care. And we will return soon with our promised episode, our regular episode, on um, the Russian invasion in 1655 of the Ukraine. We'll talk about that more in depth. Okay, thank you.